0: Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. The end of the year is approaching, which means that a slew of best of lists have been released into the discourse ether. They'll be praised and critiqued, and then there'll be a backlash to the backlash and an endless cycle of chatter that grows further and further away from what's being ranked. In the December issue, Sasha Frere Jones writes about a similarly misguided pursuit the audiophiles search for the perfect setup. As Frere Jones writes, there's no one right way to listen to music or method to exactly replicate how the music sounded in the studio. Rather, the power of great or just enjoyable music transcends even the crappiest of speakers. I spoke with the musician and music critic about remasters, Spotify, how a listener's relationship to music is perpetually changing, and yes, those... Goddamned lists. I wanted to start off by asking about a timely annual event that's basically the opposite of your dive into analog sound, which is Spotify's Wrapped feature. What's your relationship like with Spotify Wrapped? Do you find it fun to be reminded of what you already know you like? Are you ever surprised by your findings?
1: I, I am not in general particularly wound up about Spotify. I'm actually writing a, another a long piece, basically sort of modeled, not after the Harper's piece, but it's it's taking as long and I'm doing as many interviews because I'd never done that many interviews for a piece. And mm-hmm. I had sort of a revelation about how I do my job. And it relates to the, the, the line I just quoted from Ozark, which is that The more questions I ask and the less I think I know, the better a piece is going to be. Um, so I'm writing a piece a little bit about Spotify, but more about money and music and how musicians live, but also some of the annoying complaints they have. Anyway, I, um, I quite like Spotify. Um, but for instance, my Spotify Wrapped is um, an expression of what I listen to on Spotify, but I don't use only. Spotify. In fact, I use other things a little bit more often. So I have, I had a strange Spotify wrapped in that my top artist was a a guy named vegan, V E G Y N, who I love. I don't think there's nothing wrong about him being my number one artist. I think it's just that I didn't have the hard files on my computer of the vegan. So I just one day or one week listened to a shitload of vegan because I had something to write or I was just in the mood to hear him. So my number one artist is represented by the number of plays. Because that's where I listened to that guy. And then some of the other ones were more representative, like Can and James Brown, I think, and uh, Dilla. And those are people I came back to and listened to over and over. So their, their inclusion on the list is more accurate because it is stuff I listen to a lot, which is not an insult to vegan. It's just that if you understand, I think a lot of people understand what algorithms are, what data is. They understand what they did on a platform. And, you know, there's this constant whinging about like, Spotify doesn't pay enough and all of which is true, but, you know, RCA didn't pay anybody anything probably in the fucking 1975 and nobody was complaining about it then and saying like, why are you talking about your favorite radio stations? So I, I, you know, I just find, I think it's part of a a sort of political theater that I'm not interested in. So yeah, I'm interested in what I listen to on Spotify, but it's mostly what I think of is like, oh, so there must've been as I just said, like at some point where I really went crazy with this one artist or maybe I was playing tennis or jogging. And so I listened to this instead of listening to something at home. So it just represents what I happened to go into the app and listen to. And so the number one artist being vegan was a complete shock to me because I kind of forgot that I had listened to vegan for one month. And it was really only one month. Like I just happened to go bananas. I guess I like left it playing or something. So that's, that's interesting. But what does it mean? Like, I don't know. I'm not sure.
0: I mean, do you feel like the algorithmically generated genres and like listening personalities is that that sounds like you would agree that it's just kind of all in good fun or is it scientism to use a word from your piece?
1: Um, it's scientism if you're dumb. <laughs> but I think that most people and I think this about many 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 things in the world, I think people know what things are meaning uh, I was actually this morning, there's a, a guy I write for named Caleb. He has a great site called Shuffle SHFL. And he sent me something, he sent it to me, and it was part of his Discovery Weekly or Discover Weekly playlist, which I don't almost ever use. And he doesn't either, but he happened to hit play on a track and he thought I would like it. And he sent it to me, but I, that, mean, that meant I got his entire Discover Weekly playlist, which is like 30 songs or something. And it was actually... Full of interesting stuff. And I went to my own. I didn't, I couldn't find it. Then I found it because I haven't listened to it in a year or two. And I pulled it up, and it's all stuff that I know way too well. It's also all old. I don't know why that is. But um I mean, it's I like everything on it because I already like it. And I said, This is funny. I'm getting something from your Discover Weekly, but not my own. And I think people know what algorithms are and how they work and what they're doing. So I really like algorithmic playlist because i wouldn't make them up i'm a human being so the algorithm has tendencies that are you know slightly dumb sometimes and you know the first thing i noticed years ago was they will take people who are associated in one way but not another so if i play like a really if let's say lucinda williams had a really deep dub track she doesn't but if she did i would i would want the playlist to make out a whole bunch of dub it probably would come up with other singer-songwriters because the, the machine would see, oh, Lucinda Williams, and then I'd get John Prine and, and Loretta Lynn and stuff. It's just It's got a way of associating keywords, but that's fine. If you know what that is doing, then it's doing what it's doing. It often does unexpected helpful things that I like, but I'm not, I'm a human being and I have friends, so I'm able to talk to people and get you know recommendations the old fashioned way. So I, I don't find like my life is being ruined by algorithms because I understand when they're working.
0: Right. And I mean, obviously, in terms of human based recommendations, there are these annoying things called uh, best of lists that come out every year. And part of the joy is that, you know, everybody can see what, you know, what everyone's top 10 is, and that, you know, at there's this accumulation, there's this calculation, and then the the best thing of the year is tabulated according to Rolling Stone, according to sight and sound, according to whoever. So you write in your piece that I have under no duress posted end end of year best list, even in years when I was not paid to do so. So is that all in good fun or is it kind of like a sad and a reductive way of talking about art for you?
1: Um, I have a fairly agitated and somewhat unpleasant relationship to grades and numbers and rankings. Um, and then I came up under people and under magazines that believed in them pretty, you know, repetitively and, and without surcease. Like many things can be true at once. So I think at the end of the year, for instance, I'm in the middle of doing a year end thing sort of for myself. And also that side I mentioned Shuffle and I, and I was reading The wires best of just now. And I think that sort of overflow of it, it, Celebration and exuberance is kind of great because at the end of the year, you're talking about the ten or twenty or thirty or hundred things you love the most, and that's that's actually great. And I I love this time of year because I end up listening to a lot of really really good music for a month. I, the part where I get really terrified is when people think that they have discovered an axiom or a law, or that that you know that anything means more than I like it because I think we're beginning to get into a really terrible frame, especially with the audiophiles of saying you're doing it wrong and I'm doing it right. There's a guy, there's a great piece by Jeff Edgers in the Washington Post about audiophiles and the guy, the hot stamper guy, I forget his last name, it's like last or past or most. In this video, he, you know, he's the one who says, who figures out what the best pressing of a record is and in a very, very wildly specific way. And he'll tell, you know, he says, people don't like it when I tell them they're doing it wrong. And he obviously delights in telling people they're doing it wrong. Fuck that guy and fuck everyone who behaves that way. That's that's what I say when I'm worried about the ranking thing. If you're telling someone they're listening to music wrong, you're a fucking asshole. Pretending that it means more than you. I mean, this is the, the scientism move that I think is part of a genuinely harmful trend in, in many cultures, and this, is, this part is more serious. Is trying to use scientific terms and language to sort of oppress other people and their tastes and their inclinations when really all you have is you like it. Like these guys with these big speakers and whatnot, which are, you know, all fairly beautiful sounding. One of these guys in the piece, I'm going to try to curse less. Um,
0: was no, please.
1: <laughs> was Speak telling, freely. was telling someone we were listening to the artist's record. Okay, I shit you not. The people who made the fucking record were sitting there and he was lecturing them about their record. And I was like, I'm going to jump out the fucking window, my guy. And one of them pressed back and was like, "Okay, so it's, you know, vinyl through these amazing speakers. Like I made the record. I like it digitally better. We made it in the digital domain. It has more bass and more specific kind of detail like vinyl. here's Here's the thing that no one ever mentions when they're jacking off about how great vinyl is. Vinyl is such a weird fucking system a sound that you have to take the bass out and put it back in. Yes. Now you tell me what's accurate about that. It's not accurate. It's, It's a way of doing things. That's very pleasant. And it lasts, you know, Albini, Steve Albini's comment about it is, 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 is something that I think is hard to argue with, which is that it lasts longer. Like a vinyl record will last through things in a way that digital media don't. And I think that's one aspect of it. That's worth paying attention to because especially as you move on into an archival sort of practice, which happened, you can happen to your own band. My band is reissuing a bunch of records right now with the numero group, our entire catalog. There is a pretty good chance that at one point, at some point, that is one of the things we're trying to reissue will be available to us only as a vinyl record. I think we have the master tapes of everything, but there's one song, which is a very important song to us that, um, I may only have a 7-inch of because we just simply can't find the dad or the master tape. Like vinyl is incredibly important in that way, but it is not the only way or the best way to listen to music and I and this kind of scientism sort of infects an entire way, especially when you repeat these polls and you start thinking that Citizen Kane or Pet Sounds or whatever is actually better than anything else because it simply isn't and it's and it's a really really unhelpful way of thinking. That doesn't mean to say that when you have a poll and John Dealman wins or something, that it's not interesting and fun, because it is. It's totally fun. But it then shapes future thinking and feeling and perception that I think... I was talking to a musician this morning, and she was saying about how there was an act that she had to let herself like, because, you know, you're young, and in my age, it was punk rock was this sort of, like, you know, the criminal mischief system, like, you know, the cops were going to get you if it wasn't punk rock enough. So, like, like liking Yes or King Crimson or Celine Dion, like that wasn't cool. You weren't supposed to, and like that kind of thing, it's a shaming mechanism. It's not anything other than a punitive, anti-intellectual position disguising itself as an intellectual position because there there is nothing behind that wall. There is no number one. I mean, come on. Right. Like, if it's Christmas time and all my family is over, I don't want to fucking watch Chantal Ackerman. I want to put on Die Hard. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chantel. I love you. I just, I just, I just sang your praises in my newsletter, but I don't want to watch Jean Tillman, da, da da da, Bruxelles whatever the fuck it is, when my family is over and we want to watch a Christmas movie. And that doesn't mean that I don't love that movie, and it doesn't mean that I don't also love Die Hard. Like I think, I think the time for polls, in some ways, is over. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, you could come back and say, "Wait a minute! It's like a huge feminist victory to have Jean Dielman win the sound poll." Absolutely. Again, see previous paragraph, many things can be true at the same time. It's fun to have a poll. It also gives us brain worms and makes us think that there are actually best things and there is no best art. And it's a really, really terrible tendency. And people waste years of their lives pretending that things are better than other things. And they simply aren't. How many times in my life have I heard Sgt. Pepper come on and being like, oh, this fucking record. Like, I don't (laughs) wanna hear a French horn. I don't want to hear about a meter maid. I don't want to know what happened with your breakfast this morning. Like this isn't helping me. I don't. I don't care. I don't want this. I'm trying to dance. I'm trying to cry. I'm trying to do something else. I'm trying to get laid. I don't want to hear a day in the life. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. So like, and no, I'm I, just, I, sorry, go on.
0: No, no, no. I was just going to say that it's. I mean, if we're talking about more to me, it seems like lists have. the biggest argument for why lists should go away is that it's not even about the list it's about the opinion you have about the list which is then and this emotional reaction that you have to the list that is then turned into fodder for social media and that has nothing to do with the work of art itself and and you know I mean to paraphrase Tom Sharpling sports teams you have you have them do a match you go through a bracket there's a best one of the year you cannot do this with art like it just does not work and what you're saying is so true it's just like when when you when you're not in the mood for something it doesn't mean that it's bad it's just, it's like, it's not that time. And I think that's what's so great about your piece is that you're talking about, you, you distinguish this sort of like, uh, you know, these different listening spaces for listening to music and sort of how the listener interacts and the relationship to music changes within those spaces. And that's like really valuable when, you know, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, the Poptimists are not as bad as like punk rock. the punk rock dogma but still it's like it's healthy to be like okay this is not the less punitive loving something can be the better
1: right absolutely and i think i mean two things pop to mind one is that these 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 fellas even the hot stamper fella who, who who tracks the best pressings even through the terrible video compression of the web when he does a shootout with the writer and he's like and they listen blind to some stuff and here's the best one even through the little you know computer speaker you can hear that the one that he loves does sound better and the guys who go bananas about over their audio gear whatever you know it doesn't have to be limited to the guys i wrote about you know when you hear the stuff that they love well it sounds sounds incredible like you can understand being religious about it but so here's the question and and talk about a, a place of love and a place of creativity and a place of openness you know, you know, you're listening to, you know, I was I was weeping when I went to the mill with Jonathan and I heard the uh, and the, the, the stereo that Jonathan has at the mill is the greatest sounding stereo I've ever heard in my fucking life. Like, I don't know what is going on. That's not like anyone's particular brand of stuff. He's, you know, it's a Frankenstein he's built over the years. I think it's largely RCA gear. But, you know, the 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 intensity with which that music hit me like, I'm never going to forget hearing that Milton Nascimento record there. Like, it was, you know, you that's the whole enchilada. That's why we make music. That's why we listen. Like, I was just, I went to another zone. But then from there, anyone, you know, anyone involved or anyone making a top 10 list, it's like, okay, I, I get it. Like, it's fun. And like, when I was a kid, I learned about music. The most useful book I had was... I think the rock forget what it was called it was like a british book that had 100 or 200 albums picked by about 50 critics i think it was paul gambaccini was the editor i can't remember um but you know at that point access to information was such that just having a list of stuff that people loved was so useful so i could go to the record store and say i don't know who can is and i don't know what this album is with the green beans on the cover but i want this, I want this one. And I and this, I don't know who the Flying Brito brothers are. But I want this one. And like, that's literally what I did. That's how I found can I didn't know they. I didn't know what they sounded like. I had no idea. And that stuff is like, okay, that's great. But when you get to the point where you're doing this thing, sort of literally neurotically, as a defense repeatedly, and, and, and you're caring, as you said, you're talking about the list and you're investing in the in the numbers. What's number one? What's number 10? Like, what's that about? Like, why do you care what the number one anything is? What are you going to do with that? Are you going to set up a checkpoint like the cops at the Williamsburg Bridge? Like, what are you going to do? What, what are you going to do with that information? Why are you so invested in that? Because then it becomes creepy. Like, when it's a conversation, we're talking about what we love and why we love it. That's one thing. But when we're invested in the outcome like it's a fucking basketball game, like, then you've lost your mind. And then you're just. Then you're because it's art. It's not basketball. There's not a unit. There's not a, an agreed unit of measurement in art. In basketball, the the basket is here. There's points. There, there, you're <laughs> this many feet away. We draw a line. Outside that line is three points. Like there is an agreed metric. There is none of that in art. Nor should there be. So like, what the fuck are you doing with the numbers, my guy? Like, <laughs> what are you? What are you going for? What are we? What are we doing? <laughs> well, here?
0: somebody. The wrong... Somebody who might be interested in music might see the list and take the wrong things away from it.
1: Right, although... Which
0: again comes back to this protective but also punitive thing where it's just like, okay, and? It's not... (laughs) They have plenty of other chances to find the right thing. But the
1: defender of the list... is not the only thing. Exactly. The defender (laughs) of the list would say, would refer to my own story and say, okay, uh, an awesome thing about a list like the sight and sound is for anyone especially someone starting out like that's an incredible 100 item punch list if you're just getting to know film because that that the good thing about most of these best of lists is like whether or not you agree with them like it's probably going to be a really good list of 10 or 50 albums or you know 100 films so if you have a a viewing festival which I myself might do with the sight and sound list like you're going to watch a hundred great movies. So that that part's amazing. Um But of course, like it's ranked and that's the part where I'm like, eh, like I, I love John, I love John Dielman. But like in no universe do I think that that is the best film of the last hundred years or whatever the framing device for this poll is and like there is no film I would put in there. I could tell you, I could tell you by play count like what I have watched more than anything else. And it's probably Mad Max Fury Road or Blade Runner. I'm almost sure
0: we keep coming back to this idea of control and you know i'm really struck by the lines you wrote about recording and control you know you write quote an album always feels like a rock thrown over a fence we have an idea of where it might land because we tested it on car stereos and fancy setups and phones but we don't really know and that's part of why we do it and is obsessing over sound quality working against the whole project of music making which is you know expressing is which is all about expression and spontaneity
1: Problem there is that audiophiles think that there is an album and a recording artist knows that there is no album by which i mean this so i'm making a record i'm going to go back to like the very first record i made which came out on cassette so this is 1986 and we were in the the studio the university studio at brown
0: oh i'm sorry is somebody sweeping
1: oh shit i'm sorry yeah they're they're doing um
0: doing construction outside
1: sorry okay well if it's a problem i can i can move the computer in the back where there is uh,
0: yeah maybe move it actually yeah. let's, let's, let's move that. it a little
1: bit let's, just do, to be that. Safe. let's
0: do that let's it's... get the highest quality yes speaking of
1: yes <laughs> see i say i don't have a fetish and then i do have a fetish
0: <laughs> i say i don't
1: have preferences and then i do have preferences i'm a big <laughs> phony <laughs> So we listen to it. There, there's these Yamaha speakers called NS10s that are in almost every studio that are very sort of like these mid-range speakers that don't have a lot of bass that give you kind of the idea of what it'll be like through an average stereo. Then you have your fancy studio monitors. Then you often have these um, these little ones that are literally like car stereos like called Spectratone or Magnetone. I should look that up. But you have in the in the studio you often have a range of speakers that's already making it clear that the playback is going to be different in different places so you listen on the big studio monitors it sounds amazing sometimes also record labels used to have like Missy had a you know a listening event in a in the recording studio where she made the record this was kind of common in the 90s and 00s and like mm-hmm. you get an invitation and you'd hear you know under construction that's the one we heard um that's the name of the album And, you know, play it huge on these speakers and really loud. And it sounds, you know, they did that with the Black Album for Jay-Z. And, like, it sounds amazing (laughs) because they're really nice speakers. So, And it's a very effective trick to play on a critic. Like, I I walked away with very positive, hardwired sort of reactions. But anyway, so we made this record. And it sounded very, very different on these different speakers. And we would take it into the van, listen to cassette. And, you know, in that moment you know, this teenager listening, you know, for the first time to, you know, through this process, it becomes clear that there is no album. There is no platonic. There's not even an actual album there. Like there is a recording that's going to get reproduced in a lot of different places. Um, There's no accurate version of it because you would have to have something to refer to. And there's nothing to refer to other than if you really think that the two inch tape or whatever, playing back through the studio speakers is the you know the actual album and that's where the fetish leads you to like getting you know you can get copies of the master tapes you can get for like 800 bucks uh like uh an audio tape a real-to-real tape that that mimics the you know usually half inch or quarter inch master tape that the recording is cut from i mean they, they press it from that and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that like shit, i love the sound of that those are those are incredible sounding i've only heard two in my life and they're man but <laughs> that's not anyone who makes a record like, bro, that's not what we're imagining is going to happen.
0: What would you say some artists more than others are interested in making their intentions or like the circumstances of their recordings known? You know, that you, you don't just in the way that, you know, it's like some fiction is more like more from life than other, you know, other, other narratives are.
1: I think it's like, imagine you live in a house where there are no leftovers because the chef gets so pissed off that they, <laughs> that they throw out the food. That's what it's a little bit like. Like I'm sure that Franco should. I'm sure that me. Uh, I'm talking to you. I've made a bunch of records. Let me talk to you about my records. Yes, I, I I'm in the process right now of revisiting master tapes, and I think it's I think it's amazing when I hear them close to how it was in the studio when we made them because they sound really good. We we worked really really fucking hard to make them sound good, but we did that. In part because they're going to bounce around the world. They're going to be played in different places. Like there's so many different kinds of information. Like I remember a writer, I forget who it was, talking about like when you're you're in a car car and the and the car radio doesn't work and and, and, and one of the speakers isn't isn't attached and you hear part of the recording louder. So you hear like satisfaction, but all you hear is like like one drum and like one guitar because they're you know they're not in the other channel like well
0: well, isn't isn't that how Eno came up with here come the warm jets because he had like put on harpsichord music and his his stereo was like fucked up so he only heard like the wrong parts of the the quote-unquote the wrong parts of the music
1: (laughs) I think that's the story perhaps slightly mangled by the telephone game of how he he (laughs) came up unless he did this twice but he came how he came up with allegedly with ambient music was that he and I think it was actually discrete music is the first one he made is that he was playing he had broken his leg or his arm and he was in yes and he was in bed or on on the couch and the music was really 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 soft and he couldn't get up to change it but the effect it had being at that low volume made him think huh what if I intentionally made something that you couldn't or wouldn't hear at full volume and they think the first I could be wrong, but I think the first thing he made after that was uh, discrete music, and then he made the ambient one. But yeah, that's exactly, that kind of, those errors of perception can be, or like when you get into the car, or you, I I don't know why I'm talking about cars, but when you start hearing a piece of music and you're not sure where the one is, if it's in 4-4, and you Mm -hmm. start hearing the rhythm, or you come into a nightclub and you're not sure what the DJ is doing, and you hear the music sort of backwards, this happens a lot in rehearsal, we come up with some of our best stuff when we don't know what the other guy is doing, so you have three interlocking patterns and you have people with three different opinions of where the one is. And then you stop and you stop recording it. Hopefully you're taping it. And then you all, you have a discussion and you're like, Oh wow, that was great because of what we didn't know. So the idea that, that there is some deficit, that there is something wrong when you're hearing it through, you know, bad speakers or like a, 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 like a little Bluetooth buddy or something like the idea that, you know, there's some great loss. I just think this is hilarious. Also, so many of these aging boomer audiophile guys like grew up with the Beatles on like AM radio. So, like, yes. what the fuck is up with that? Like, is it is it only your, it's like Elon Musk talking now about like what offends him on Twitter and it's like shit to do with like, you know, some personal loss of his own, but he doesn't care if other people get hurt. Is it like, Is it just that this audiophile community is always about like whatever they thought was an epiphany and whatever moment they had with a certain set of records? Like, so they're always super touchy about the Beatles and Bob Dylan, like lining up to get the eight millionth remastering of Revolver or whatever, which is not to say that those records aren't, I mean, here I'll I'll riff on that. Sorry, I'm, I'm sure that you have another question, but like the Beatles are always sort of, you know, ever way too present in every conversation about recorded music, frankly. And there's a new version of Revolver that uh, George Martin's son, Giles, is uh, in charge of the, the sort of catalog now. And he does these, you know, new versions, you know, something for Christmas. You know, you can give your dad the ninth version of Revolver. Now, I happen to love Revolver. One of the first things I ever did was record a version. That band I was talking about in 1986, we did a version of Tomorrow Never Knows, which is on Revolver. Love the Beatles. They're great. But so using some wacky technology that did not exist at the time, he's done these various mixes of revolver and isolated instruments. And in some ways, it's extremely sort of like sacrilegious, like it completely goes against the idea of a master recording, which I love it because that's, you know, there's so many copies of X recording. Well, let's make a different one. You know, let's let's make the multi-tracks available. You can do that now with software. You can isolate instruments and make your own dub versions of of anything. And I think that's fantastic. And this is where we get into the area. I think of fetish, which is what this is about. Like repetition, repetition based on a pre-existing um, impression, not actually being open to the current moment, but the fetish is reproducing like an addiction. It's reproducing an original sensation or you're trying to, which is why people get insane about like, I need to hear this record in the best possible fidelity. And it's like, my guy, you've, you've heard it. Like, you've had that experience don't you want to have a different experience like why do you think you're going to have that experience again why do you want to have that experience better like why do you care about how much more detail there is in kind of blue that you've never heard like uh that's that see that's getting into just purely neurotic um relationships to art which i think you know are you know we don't hate people we just hate their defenses right so like there's nothing wrong with that at some level but when it becomes a list when it becomes a rank when it becomes something that is essentially an urge masquerading as an idea then i think we're wasting each other's time
0: well i'm gonna try and ask this question carefully so i'm somebody who likes to collect records i'm somebody who's has a deep interest in film same uh and i often feel like a lot of times if i go to say the wfmu record fair there aren't a whole lot of women there. Oh no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. Uh, and if I happen to go to a rep screening, not a whole lot of women there. And when people are arguing about the list and the people who seem to get most excited about the list, it's not women. Do you feel like this particular sort of obsession with ranking and all this, all this stuff we're talking about, and even gear itself is one of the one of the great shows of pest. 10 years being john glazer loves gear do you feel like it has something there's something kind of masculine perhaps about this or there's something there's some particular sort of mania when again i don't i don't want to be like lacanian i don't want to be a turf i don't want to be a reductionist however do you feel like there's a certain tendency perhaps in these behaviors that has something to do with the male psyche or how men are socialized
1: boy did you come to the right place um (laughs) Hey, my wife is an analyst and she's reading Darian Leaders, so be as Lacanian as you want. Um, Oh, right. um, I, this is a true story. I did not understand the term mansplaining until I wrote this article. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because I had never been held hostage in that way. Uh, There was a point at which... And I'm going to come around because this is sort of a complicated answer. Um, I mean, the short answer is yes. That's as short as I can make it one word. Yes. Um, But there was a guy, I actually don't want to air him out because I I really liked him. It was was a topic and there was sort of like a, a a sub question and then my main question. The sub question had to do with something that he actually lectured on. And he basically lectured for me for an hour and in, while he was doing it, I was saying like, my guy, I have X amount of time. My main question was about something else to do with, with, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, type stuff like the, the, the way that sound reflects in a room. And he just gave me a, a related, actually really interesting lecture. I mean, I, I was like, now I know what it's like to go on a Tinder date. Like, I get it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I never actually ended up being on the dating apps, but I, I, you know, my friends tell me, mostly women tell me these stories, and I'm like, oh, okay, so this is what it's like. Because I, it's not all bad. This guy was excited. He knows a lot. It was really interesting. In some way, there's a real tenderness and a vulnerability in enthusiasm, right?
0: Absolutely. But...
1: <laughs> i I can't stop saying my guy but my guy like (laughs) there are two of us here like what are you doing and also like and i'm sure a lot of women have this feeling which gets to the sort of another thing i want to say as i am mansplaining mansplaining to you the (laughs) like we both care about the same thing and 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 i'll raise my hand and say i know the thing that you're saying now i know I actually know this. And I, I know women, you know, have had that feeling a million, million times. It's like, you're not even explaining something to me I don't know. I do know this. We can skip this and go on to another nope, nope, here we go. Here we go. Now mm-hmm. we're talking about this this part of it. And and like it's very dispiriting. And the weird thing is, here you are. You like all these things. And then you get and then you gotta step back and say, We're talking about music, not something weird, music talking about music how the fuck did music become this thing that like we're hearing so much from white men about like that's weird that's not what music is that's not who makes it who it appeals to that's like how did this happen Mm -hmm. how is it that i'm you know i looked at i said i said to somebody at one point i was like i've never i've talked to i'm a white man i've talked to many white men There are many articles I've done where like, it's largely white dudes, but I have never seen anything like audiophile culture. Like Hmm. there is, it is no, nothing but white men, nothing. But you know what? It was wacky. And there was a ton of shit that got cut, but there was an entire section about Apple audio and spatial audio that we had to cut. And there was a, and there was a whole section with the academics. Now the academics are not all white men? In fact, kind of the opposite in a great way. Like Gasio Zunia, and there are all these other people who are not white men. In fact, I think there are more women in the field of sort of sound studies than than men at this point, or it certainly seemed that way. Like I talked to a hugely diverse range of people who are practitioners and sound artists, and um, like Shiva Feshareki. Like it's a totally wild scene when when you get out of audiophilia. And, you know, and and audiophiles are, are generally not people who make stuff. The academics and the theorists and the artists are generally people who do two or three things at once. They all, most of them make the stuff. So the audiophiles are especially weird when you, like I was telling you about someone who's never made a record lecturing me about recording studios, (laughs) mind blowing. Like it's, it's extra weird. If you get beyond the gender and the race stuff and you start looking at the fact, like, wait a minute, these people don't even fucking make records. Why the fuck am I listening to somebody who's never been in a recording studio? And and almost to a person, or I can say in this case, to a man, they haven't made records. They don't play instruments. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Which I think is where some of the ferocity of their opinion comes from is it's insecurity. They really know mm. they know that they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm here to tell you, sorry, fellas, but like these guys really don't what they know. Is the stuff that plays records. They have childlike, in many cases, childlike conceptions of how records are made. Literally, like a dumb kid staring at the TV. Yeah. And like it blew me away how many times I I would you know someone would explain beautifully, and this gets back to the sort of being on the Tinder date. Like they will explain beautifully how electricity works, how a diaphragm moves, how a what a transducer is, all this shit, what venting means. And then they started talking about a recording process and I was like, you actually think the Elvis Presley records were made like at Carnegie Hall, bro. They were made in a closet. You <laughs> fucking moron. It doesn't matter where you make a record, especially if you're using close miking, like any place can sound good until you actually, this is why we have to begin the day saying we don't know anything. Like, I don't know shit about fuck. You go, one of the records that I made that, that has ended up being, you know, noticed more than any others is this St. Elmo's fire cover we did with stereo lab. The Southern Recording Studios, it's, it's Southern is the label and Southern is the recording studio in North London. Like it's covered with orange carpet. Like if you walked into it and you were like, oh, this isn't flash enough, like, cause it doesn't look like much. Like that's what you would think. But it—it—it it, it does a, it does a really nice thing to sound. It deadens a whole lot of things, but it brings out certain other, you know, it just works because that's what recording studios are like. Like you don't know until you set up the mics And you set up a certain band with a certain engineer. You don't know. You don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, but to defend and God help me for trying to defend (laughs) people like this. But I mean, you, 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 I think you rightly point out that this is coming from a place of insecurity and not knowing and feeling that I've, I've read enough and therefore I know. Right. But you don't need you don't need to know how a record is made no, to appreciate not. it absolutely not. and it's no. just and it's this totally like added on level of uh justification again for why i like something the way i do and it, it i mean yeah but
1: think about how like how common it is for book reviewers to be authors themselves yes and i mean the reason i write about music is is this is it was in the late, no, the mid nineties, early nineties, I was just getting so frustrated by how many reviews were inaccurate and talked only about the lyrics. When they did talk about the music, got things wildly wrong, especially with early hip hop and sampling where people simply didn't seem to understand how anything was being made. And that that's what made me, I think the first thing that Anne Marlowe had me write was about this lo-fi thing where my friend Andy and I were at the knitting factory. It was like after a show, after. I, I had played, or no, it was me, not him, but he has a band called Blind Idiot God. And we were just like, this lo fi thing is so frustrating. You know, many of us have day jobs precisely to save up to take our bands into the studio and record things properly. The idea that things are more authentic because you've recorded them badly is just, you know, it's, 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 and then you have journalists take you seriously, like that just, that's just, oh my lord. And that's what I was saying to Andy, and that's how career as a writer began I mean about music writer because Anna heard me say this and was like okay um the but to your point about like you don't need to know of course you don't need to know anything you absolutely don't need to know anything but I think there's a point at which you know the ego gets out of control and you start assuming you know things you don't um, and that can come across in, in ways that have nothing to do with what we're talking about. Like you can be a mind reader, you can assign intention, which happens all the time, especially in criticism. You can say, you know, this is trying to do this. This is about that. Well, you can hear here that they're doing X, Y, and Z. And like, you know, you know, no such thing. And I think that's a related, but not directly. I don't want to get too far off, off your question. But, to, you know, you were defending people not knowing every part of the process and, uh, absolutely, you can, you can, you can write and enthuse and be a lover of things without knowing anything about them. Like I don't know exactly how Burger King makes its fries, but I feel very, very comfortable saying that I love them.
0: Yes, don't write a little fan fiction about them <laughs> based on your previous potato experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I have to say, I'm really touched by the framing of this essay in which you and your wife work to make your space. Uh, more vibey during lockdown when you weren't able to have company over. Would you say private listening, like as you designate the cocoon or the cathedral approaches became more important or meaningful for you during the lockdown?
1: Yeah. Not to, not to drop a rock on your head here, but um, there's something I left out, which was in the earliest draft. And uh, uh, the mother of my children was dying Mm. and we thought a lot about deborah when the lights were up and you know i know where i was when i heard about her passing and that happened in the middle of the first year i mean the pandemic started and uh you know I, i was here with heidi and her son sam and we make you know we're here again and uh we make a great little team and we were like binging like the bureau and all these shows and Babylon Berlin and Borgen and other things begin with B and and she got the diagnosis in July and she passed in G, uh, January of 2021 so it was uh, that was the real framing event um, but I took it out because I, I was like this is this is it's too, it's too big it's too much. It also felt wrong. It felt exploitative to leave it in. Um, I just didn't want, I don't know, because at some level, it didn't really relate, Um, but it was, along with the pandemic, it was what made us, you know, it drove us to, like, the space needed to be positive for my sons, for, for, although we weren't seeing them because of the lockdown. And then, once she got sick, they stayed, you know, to take care of her. So I didn't see them um, actually until after she had died. Um, no, that's not true. I saw them right before she died. Um, but mostly, they were in Connecticut. If they went to Connecticut to to her folks' house to just sort of ride out the pandemic, and then she got sick, um, so that's where they were with her. Um, so yeah, there was you know there was this framing of 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 illness and death and dying, and uh, I I needed <laughs> I needed something to go right. I mean it's funny since I took it out, I sort of put it out of my mind. But the need to have a positive space was pretty fucking real, you know, like yeah. we needed we needed things. I mean she died in five months, so it was. Um, it was imperative that our space feel and you know my wife Heidi lived here before i moved in and like she's a remarkable person and this this apartment just has uh, it just has great energy i don't know where it comes from i mean probably heidi but and her kids but we all we all kind of acknowledge that you know there's there's a certain kind of spiritual energy at play in certain spaces um, and you know we don't know why we love them so much like the the stone the, the live music space that used to be down on First and C, like this funny little corner, you know, cramped like former, I think it was a bodega or something, and it got turned into a music venue. And it's like at, at every convenient, you know, in respect to convenience and sort of um, sight lines and everything, it's a disaster. <laughs> but it, it, um, the sight lines are actually fine. Um, but it was magical and they moved to the new school because of, you know, logistical reasons, but like that original space, man, it was just a, an incredible place to see music. So that's the kind of spiritual energy. So this apartment has it. And, and it, and it always did, but something about the pandemic and and Deborah's illness was like having those lights up and having that key vibe was like, we, in a really, really like deep way and not trivial way, we needed that, that kind of positivity and to give it to our friends once they were able to come over to the family and just to, to have a place you could go. And we have, we have people over almost every Sunday night and uh, you know, they remark on it. They say, Oh wow. You know, this place feels great. And, and it's nice to feel like you have an actual haven. Like it has to be a space that, that is positive and nurturing and, you know, also like I, I, I I am, I'm a sober alcoholic. I'm constantly doing, you know, AA meetings on zoom and like, I like it to look nice behind me and, you know, to make people feel good. And like, I don't want anyone to be like, I don't know, freaked out. So Mm -hmm. in the early pandemic when that stuff was really sort of vital and, you know, everyone was getting on zoom and being like, how the fuck do we do this? How do we move the meeting from, you know, a room, which is so important, you know, people call it the rooms, like it's very important. Mm-hmm. And I think AA doubled in size during the pandemic. I don't I don't know exactly, but it's
0: been- Well, the substance abuse like skyrocketed.
1: It did, I'm but sure also like bad. all these people, my God, I mean, there are people in my, I started a meeting of my own and like, there are people I know who a lot of people I know at this point, I mean, I don't know, 20 people who, you know, have only ever been sober since the pandemic, mostly on Zoom. I know, pe- wow. I know people with, you know, two or three years of sobriety who have never been to a, a physical meeting. Like, it's remarkable. And all these people would say, like, yeah, I live in, in you know, a, t- a place where there are no meetings. I live, like, miles away from a city. Like, mm-hmm. it's fantastic. I think, I mean, because because the program is anonymous it's it, and, and we're not supposed to do these things, I don't know how to write about it, but I, or even how to research it, but I think... I think something really beautiful, this is way off the topic, but I think something really beautiful happened during the pandemic, which a lot of people within AA are extremely resistant to because people are constantly sharing in meetings about how much they hate Zoom. Cause like you get back to an in-person meeting and it's amazing. Like I love in-person meetings, but I I it feels like we're what we're talking about. I want things two things two things to be true at once and for that to be a thing you can express because like they're both amazing. And yeah. I think that the introduction of Zoom into AA not, not that this has anything to do with what we're talking about is
0: well it does but it does it's about a question about spaces right and where you can receive and be at a certain place and feel a certain thing and feel safe yeah. or receptive to certain things like that's you know well that, that's that's what you know i feel like more than perhaps more than antibiotics the fact that we all or most people can be inside and be warm and not you know like be, just the comfort basic comfort it's so it's it's very taken for granted and even if it can be achieved on something as horrendous as zoom right it's it's a good thing absolutely
1: well in some ways i didn't think about it until now but it is exactly what we're talking about in that we're talking about what's better or worse and things that are spiritually important so i was in a, a physical meeting recently where um i'm afraid that i'm violating all the principles of the program talking about this but i'm not mentioning any names and i'm not even telling which meeting it was but like five different people shared about how much they hated Zoom, hmm. and I was like, "Okay, I get it. Like, I would, I would rather be in a physical meeting myself. But, you know, it almost it almost begins to feel like an audio. These also were all men. Um, hmm. It begins to feel like an audio file discussion because, like, okay, okay, but why do you want to? As we say, as as we say in in early parenthood, like, I don't want to yuck somebody's yums, like. <laughs> Why are you bothering to share that you don't like Zoom meetings? Like many people, of course, because of illness, can't go to a physical meeting, um, and a lot of people who are uncomfortable in physical spaces love going to meetings on Zoom. I, there are a bunch of yeah. meetings that I really like on Zoom. My my meeting, the one that I helped start, like we don't have a physical meeting. It's all it's like people in seven different states. Um, and it's been an incredibly important meeting uh, for, you know, a little tiny group of us. So I think that gets to, in some ways, that same sort of male, it's the control part that I think freaks us out. Like, why are mm-hmm. you so fucking invested in telling me I'm doing it wrong? Like, I really, I want you to go, if, if you don't mind me being a little bit luxury, like go to this Washington. <laughs> I'll allow it. Thank you. <laughs> no, because no, you mean you're asking me for the piece. So it's, uh, it's. <laughs> the Washington Post piece is actually really interesting. I don't know if you've read it, but like it came out right before our piece. I'll say our, Mm. because you know, solidarity (laughs) team Harper's, but like, it's very similar in that, like he must've been working on it at the same time. It's, it actually has all, it's like six or seven sections. And he has the sections that we got rid of. Like we had a vinyl section. We got rid of and spatial audio section. I, I don't remember if he had that, but like, it's really similar and it's very big. And like, longer than our piece and it's like it's very well done and he's dealing with a lot of the same figures and anyway the video with this hot stamper guy like the relish which which he says like i tell people they're doing it wrong and like you know he fancies himself a bad hombre and like you know okay fella (laughs) but 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 that's it's it's funny but then it's not funny you know like, yeah, when we're when it's,
0: it's off putting, especially
1: like in the in the context of recovery, like, you know, Bill himself would curse you for, for, you know, discouraging someone else's sobriety. Like, it doesn't fucking matter how you do it. Like, you do it on Zoom, you do it in person, like, bro, stay sober, H- hit a meeting. Like, and with music, yeah. I think music is sort of the same thing. I made that point about, like, the audiophiles have this sort of weird language in which it, they make music sound so fragile. Like, no, you're not really going to get it unless you listen to you know on this Zeloton, whatever the fuck and like that's the opposite of music my guy like music in its shittiest version through a thumbnail speaker on top of my stove you know in a silent way is gonna make me cry like I don't need the music doesn't need your fancy speakers like you're you're the you're the least essential thing here like you're not the essential thing you're the least essential thing in this chain we can listen to this music on any system and it will do the work that's what's miraculous about it you can play give it up or turn it loose on a fucking corn cob and it'll sound astonishing like that's that's the really interesting part about recorded music is how much it can do no matter how badly you reproduce it it will still just blow your mind because there's spiritual energy in that music and 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 that spiritual energy is not going to be diminished by some weird playback system.
0: Absolutely. Well, I hope everyone has enjoyed listening to this. However, they may be listening to this. It has been engineered at the highest quality possible. <laughs> I apologize for any sort of background noise. But such thank you so much. This was really a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much. I uh, I loved it.
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crumb, with production assistance by Ian Montagani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.